Well, this, um, this past week, I was very saddened to learn about the, the death of uh, a man who I, I claim as a, a mentor. I've never met him, but a, a mentor from a, a distance, Tim Keller. Uh, if you, you know Tim Keller, Tim was a, a pastor and an author. Uh, he planted a, a conservative, Presbyterian, Reformed church in the heart of New York City. Uh, and he was told it can't be done. Like, there's no way that, that the, the culture in New York City is going to accept a, a Bible-believing, conservative church. And yet he went in and he planted this church, and it's thriving. And, and he had a kind of a unique approach to ministry. Uh, he did uh, not wage a war, a culture war, with New York City. Uh, didn't adopt kind of a combative posture, uh, but neither did he just uh, allow the church to kind of be co-opted by the, the culture. Instead, he uh, kind of came up with this third way, that we're going to engage the culture and, and we're going to be the faithful presence of Jesus Christ in this culture. We're going to represent Jesus in this culture, and we're going to do it with conviction and, the reason I love Tim Keller is he's a master of the word and, conviction and generosity. Uh, it is not easy to uh, do ministry in a culture that is becoming more and more secular. Uh, the church used to be seen in a, a positive light, uh, but gradually that has been shifting and what used to be true only on our, our coast, like on the East Coast or on the West Coast, where things have become very secular, it's becoming increasingly true in, in communities like ours. Like we are removed from New York City geographically and culturally, but not as much as we might think. And so the questions that Keller and his church had to wrestle with, like how do we reach out to this community that is becoming increasingly secular, the same questions that we have to wrestle with, even here in a small rural Midwest town. Uh, Keller uh, put out a, a, about four years ago just a real short little video addressing the question of how do we engage uh, a culture that is becoming increasingly secular. I want you to see that video. It is really true that, uh, that in a post-Christian Western society, whether that's uh, in, in North America or, or, or Europe or Australia, uh, wherever you are, there is a great danger that in your interaction, trying to reach out and engage uh, your non-Christian culture, that the culture colonizes you. And the reason for that is that um, a post-Christian culture is quite different than a, uh, a non-Christian or pre-Christian culture. The post-Christian culture has co-opted a lot of Christian ideas um, it has, uh, uh, for example, taking care of the poor and human rights and many of these things that, that did not grow up in non-Christian cultures. They grew up in the West in Christian culture. The West has sort of taken over a lot of Christian ideas, and, um, but, but uh, uh, taken them to, a, to an extreme. So, for example, the importance of human rights and, and doing justice has been turned into an extreme individualism. And so what can actually happen is a, a Christian uh, can easily fall into uh, getting 
co-opted by that individualism. So there's a, a kind of, I, I call it a liberal individualism that says, um, uh, I, I need to do justice for the poor and I need to do racial justice, but nobody should tell me what to do sexually. Um, there's a kind of conservative individualism that says, I believe in traditional values, but I can do anything I want with my money and please don't talk to me about race because I didn't own any slaves and I don't think that's a problem. And it's extraordinarily easy for Christians to think that they are being Christian, but they're actually getting co-opted by either what I would call blue state or red state uh, individualism. Uh, that's just not as likely to happen if you're a Christian growing up in India. Uh, you're not likely to just sort of fall into Hinduism. You're not as likely if you're a Christian growing up in, in Japan to just fall into Buddhism, but you are very likely to fall into one of these forms of liberal or conservative individualism, thinking it's Christianity. Uh, so what's important is we just need to understand how the biblical worldview differs from all other different worldviews. And so worldview education or apologetics is actually necessary even to disciple people nowadays. For all these reasons, it's not easy to engage the culture and to reach out and to seek to uh, convert people and know them. But we have to do it because the Bible commands us to do it. And even in Western culture, where there's those dangers, we have to do that. So he says it's not easy to engage the culture, and yet we have to do it because God commands us in the scripture to, to make disciples, and disciples live in the culture. They live in our communities, and so we have to, to learn how to engage people in the culture that we live, but it's not easy. What Tim Keller modeled and what I believe the scripture teaches is the way we do that is through conviction and generosity. We are called to be a, a people of conviction. We have beliefs, beliefs that we believe very strongly, very firmly, and uh, we hold those beliefs and we express those beliefs with generosity. Conservative conviction, liberal generosity. In the, uh, the many tributes that I read this last week about Tim Keller, there's one word that's always used to describe him, uh, and the word is winsome, winsome. Tim Keller was winsome, and, and I believe the reason he was winsome is because he modeled this. He was a, a man of extraordinary conviction and extraordinary generosity. So we're going to look at the, the scriptures today to to get some idea of how do we model this? How do we live with conviction and generosity? Join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. Father God, we thank you for uh, your word. Lord, you have not left us as a, a ship without a rudder, but you've given us everything that we need to know for life and faith. We pray that your word would be our rule and your spirit would be our guide and your glory would be our greatest desire. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're going to look at uh, the letter to the Colossians. This is Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. And, and as we read this letter, we need to remember that the church that Paul is addressing is a church wrestling with the question, how do we engage the culture? Uh, and, and they were living very much in a, a culture that was hostile to the church. And so they had to wrestle, how, how do we reach out to people who see us in a negative light? 
We're going to look at four different passages uh, through Colossians and eventually landing on uh, Colossians chapter 4, but I want to work our way up to that. So we're going to start with chapter 1, verse 6, and we're going to start with hope. Listen to what Paul writes to this church. He says, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and it's growing. All over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and it's growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. That is such a hopeful sentence to me. The gospel is growing. The gospel can bear fruit. It can grow in the harshest of cultural climates. So so think about that. Isaiah talked about this. He talked about the the desert blooming, like this harsh desert uh, where it's arid and it's dry and the soil is hard, and yet God can, can cause the desert to bloom. And so God can go into the most hard places, places like New York City that are are maybe not as attuned to to the gospel. And God can can take hard soil, he can take thorny soil, he can take rocky soil, and he can tenderize it and find some good soil, and things can bloom. And this is happening all over the world. Today, we could join Paul in saying, all over the world— In every corner of the world today, the gospel is bearing fruit. The gospel is growing. There is no culture that exists today that is able to stop the gospel. Now, I think that's important for us to to hear because it talks about the path forward. The path forward in the, the sharing of the gospel is not, I believe, to engage in a culture war. We, the gospel has not been stripped of its power because of some culture, because of some secular culture that is unable to strip the, the, the gospel of its power. And so the path forward is not dependent on us winning a, a culture war. God's kingdom is going to advance. It's going to advance by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's going to advance by the proclaimed word. Faith comes by hearing the word. And Christ applies his spirit power to that word, and lives are transformed. Minds are transformed. There's power in the word. We just sang, our God, our God is greater. Our God's stronger. Our God is higher than any other. There is no, no cultural climate that can, can defend against the power of the gospel. So the gospel is growing. Take heart. Now chapter 2, verse 8. Paul writes to the church and he says this, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. Guard your your theology. Guard your minds. Be sure that you don't get co-opted by the world. Keller wrote about that. There's this danger that as we're trying to minister to the world around us in which we live, that the world actually colonizes us. Like we're sending, we're, we're missionaries being sent out into our community. The community is also 
infiltrating the church. And, and so he's saying you've got to be careful. Guard your theology. Don't be taken captive according to the basic principles of this world. Don't let yourself be deceived. So generosity and conviction. When you look at the scriptures, there are sometimes you find even Jesus not being generous. Like, like how can we say you've got to be generous and uh, be a person of conviction if Jesus wasn't always generous? So you dig a little deeper and look, well, when was it that Jesus wasn't being generous? It was always with people infiltrating the church usually other religious people, Pharisees, religious leaders who were trying to sow uh, their convictions, false teaching into the church. And to them, Jesus said things that uh, we would say are not very generous. To their face, he called them liars, deceivers, wolves in sheep's clothing, blind guides, children of hell, whitewashed tombs, just a few of the words that he used to describe them. Like when it comes to the, the church, the, the, the culture is not going to stop the gospel. But the culture can very much cause the church to, to stumble. Like if we're not careful and we begin to play according to the rules of the culture, we begin to adopt the posture of the culture, the principles of the culture, we're going to get tripped up. And so Jesus took that very seriously. Now, the interesting thing, we often think of that in terms of, you know, like uh, what is called license to sin or, or a libertine posture, that the world is getting in and it's teaching us that we can just do anything and it'll be okay, we're saved. That actually wasn't as much of a problem that Jesus was addressing. He was addressing the more conservative side. The religious people who are coming in and saying, you know, this is great, this this newfound freedom that you have, this grace that you live in, but don't forget, you've got to keep jumping through all the hoops. They're advocating for a stricter religion, a more legalistic religion, and Jesus was not going to tolerate that. Because you begin to add hoops, you begin to add stuff to, to grace and faith, and you no longer have the gospel. You've just slipped back into this, this old way of doing things where we've got to earn it. And that is just as dangerous as someone coming in and saying, hey, you can do anything you want. You're under, you're under grace. You can fall off the, the path on both sides. So don't become a captive to the basic principles of this world. Don't let yourself, don't let the church be colonized by the world. Now continuing chapter 3, verse 5 through 10. Put to death. He says to the church, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all of these things, things such as these, anger, Rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other. Since you've, been, you, since you've taken off your old self with its practices, you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. 
And then skipping a verse, it says this, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. So when I, when I look at that passage, in short, what I think Paul is, is writing is, is simply this, be all in. Church, we've got to be all in on our faith. We can't just parcel out the, the bits uh, that we like. I like this, but I don't like that. We've got to be all in. So, so it is not enough to have a biblical sexual ethic. Like when it comes to a sexual ethic, we, we hold the line, we're tradition. It is not enough to have a, a biblical sexual ethic if we are marked by rage and anger. And it is not enough to, to be honest if you remain a person who is captured by the idolatry of greed. And it is not enough to be kind and to be gentle if you've adopted the world's posture of immorality. Like, we have got to be all in. He says, put to death, kill, crucify those things in you that are not in line with the new creation that you have become. Before we ever hope to be a witness to the world around us, a witness to our neighbor, before we hope to penetrate the world with the gospel, the gospel has to penetrate us. I, I, I've heard it said kind of crudely, church, are you, are you smoking what you're selling? Are, are you buying what you're selling? Because sometimes it doesn't look like it. We, we hear what you're saying, but when we look, we, things don't align before the gospel penetrates the culture, before we go out with this message, we got to let the message penetrate our hearts. We've got to be transformed. And that involves the clothes we're wearing. There's some clothes that we have to discard. Discard all of those things. And then, we don't want to be naked, put on some new clothes. What clothes should we put on? Compassionate clothes. Kind clothes. Gentle clothes, humble clothes, patient clothes. We're fighting an uphill battle because in many respects we've lost our credibility. Because this is kind of what it means when we say post-Christian. You know, we're different than the church in the first century. In the first century it was pre-Christian. Like they were hearing these new ideas and they were threatening and so they were received uh, negatively. In a post-Christian world, the, the community around us is saying, we've heard it, maybe we've even dabbled in it, we've tried it, and we don't think it works. Like, you're not telling us anything we don't already know. Thanks, but no thanks. And so when our message doesn't align with our life, we're losing credibility. So to review, the gospel, let's return to hope, the gospel's bearing fruit all over the world, in some places more than others. But the gospel is bearing fruit, and there's no cultural tide that's going to push against that. Second thing we said, don't be taken in by the, the philosophies of this world, the principles of this world. 
And then the third thing we just said is that we've got to be transformed. The gospel has to penetrate us. There's some things that we've got to crucify in ourselves, and we've got to put on some new clothes, clothes that resemble Jesus Christ. And so now we come to the end of the book. And in just a couple verses, Paul is going to give the church direction on how it is they are to engage their community. So chapter 4, verse 2. Paul writes this to the church. Devote yourselves to prayer. Being watchful, being thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. So the very first thing, it's not a mistake that Paul writes, is pray. Like before you even step out the door and you're thinking like, I, I want to take the gospel to the streets, I want to make a difference in my community, don't step out that door unless you've prayed. Pray. We've been called to a world that is in desperate need of a Savior. We know the Savior the prince of this world, Satan, is trying to frustrate our efforts, trying to do everything he can to frustrate our efforts, to, to blind the minds of the, the people that we're trying to reach. Not everyone's going to love the message that we bring. You're going to be labeled. You're going to be persecuted. Pray. I don't know a single church that doesn't at least give lip service to the fact that, that we value prayer. Like every single church will say that. We value prayer. But how many churches are truly praying? Like we know that unless the Lord builds the house, we're laboring in vain. Like what's the point? Our, we don't have the charisma. We don't have the answers. Apart from that battery, you know, in the, in the pointer, we've got no light. And so, so we're called to pray. This last week, I was in a, a meeting with some of our volunteers for the senior high youth, and we we're planning uh, for this summer and planning for next fall already regarding our, our senior high youth program. And during that meeting, uh, Mike Ankrum said, you know, we just need to pray. We just need to pray. And I'm so grateful for that because we can, it's good to strategize. And it's good to plan. We need to do that. But we need to pray as well. And so when, when Christine says, you know, let's be in prayer for, for VBS, that's not a throwaway line. No, like, like really, we've got three weeks. And we're going to be ministering to little children who's possibly whose home life is just a wreck. And, and we don't know what's going on in their hearts and in their minds. Pray. Pray for God's spirit to be at work. Pray, Paul says specifically, pray for an open door. Pray for an open door so that we might proclaim the mystery of God. If we're ministering in a culture that is becoming increasingly hardened to the gospel, that means doors are becoming increasingly closed. And so what do we pray? We pray for an open door. Pray that the, the door will be open, that we're going to have an opportunity. Pray that God is going to go before us and soften hearts. Listen to the, this next sentence. Pray that I might proclaim the message clearly, clearly as I should. 
I have uh, often felt that, that one of the, the problems right now with the church and the culture is that they're hearing us say something that we're not saying. Like the message is getting twisted. Like we're, we're saying that, that this is what is God's ideal, this is God's design, and they're hearing us say, oh, you hate sinners. No, that, that's not what we're saying. We love sinners. There's nobody else to love. Like we don't love sinners, what are we doing? You know, pray that, that I'm going to communicate the message clearly and pray that they don't hear something that I'm not saying. As we pray, as we communicate clearly, our conviction comes through. You know, there shouldn't be confusion. It's very clear. This, this is what we believe. Pray that that comes through clearly. Pray for an open door. So if we pray for an open door, what do you think we should expect? I think we should expect occasionally an open door. Like, it's going to happen, right? Like, Lord, what a great way to start your day. Lord, I pray that you give me some open doors today. And now I'm going through my day, and I'm alert, like thinking, okay, where are the open doors? Oh, there's the open door. So, so God answers our prayer. He presents us an open door, and now what do we do? Well, Paul answers that. Verse 5, be wise. Well, first thing we need to do is be wise. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. When that door is open, have the courage to walk through it. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace, generosity. Lead with grace. Lead with generosity. Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So when presented with an open door, make the most of the opportunity. Be ready. Be expectant. Don't let that opportunity pass you by. I have a, a neighbor that I have uh, been reaching out to and befriending and praying for over several years now. Uh, but my, I, you know, my default is to lean probably more towards the generosity than the, the conviction, and so I always have to muster up courage to, to add a little salt. And a, a week ago, I'm looking down and seeing him, and two Mormons pulled up. And they got out of the car and they engaged him in conversation for about an hour. And I found myself getting angry. Angry at the Mormons, but even more angry at myself. Like here they are, they, they just show up. Like I've been laboring for years. <laughs> and they just show up and, and engage in the conversation. And a week later, they showed up again. And he invited them into his house. And, and they talked for a good long time. Like, I, I don't know, they sense an open door and they barge through that door. And here I am with just a little morsel of salt, a little morsel of salt. Like, now, I'm trusting God in all of that and, and I was praying against their efforts, so I don't think that probably went anywhere. But. Let your conversation be full of grace. Let your conversation be full of generosity. Remember the clothes that you're wearing. Remember... Put on the clothes of kindness and compassion 
and gentleness and humility and, and patience. Let people see your clothes. Those are attractive clothes. But then second, season your conversation with some salt. Season that generosity with some conviction, with truth. Too much salt, you ruin the meal. Too little salt, it doesn't add enough flavor. And so there, it takes wisdom, it takes prayer to, to discern how much salt. Generosity and conviction, conviction and generosity... When those are paired together, it creates a winsome combination. And I believe God has called us to be, to be winsome. I think Jesus is the most winsome person that has ever walked this planet. But I do need to, to end with a disclaimer. Uh, just because we are striving to be winsome doesn't always mean people are going to see us in a winsome light. Paul is writing this from prison. Like I'm assuming he was living out what he's telling them to do, you know, grace and truth and conviction and generosity, and it ended, he ended up in a prison. On many occasions where he's beaten. I mean, Jesus told us this, you will be hated. So whether or not the world calls us winsome isn't the, the gauge of whether we're doing what we're called to do. We are called to be winsome. The world may not always see us as winsome. And as the world gets darker around us, it will probably see us as less winsome, but we're called to stay the course, conviction and generosity. Join me as we pray. Uh, Father God, we can't do this on our own. Uh, we're going to mess it up every time. Either we're going to barge through that door um, on our own, or we're, we're going to uh, not pour out enough salt. So we call on you, we call on your spirit to, to guide us every single day, every single opportunity. Give us the courage when you present us open doors to, to step through those doors. And then, Lord, guide our actions, guide our words. Uh, Lord, may people see you in us. And we trust you to grow your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.